Well, do not turn in your Bibles this morning to 1 Peter because that's not where we're at anymore. If you missed last week, you missed the last of 1 Peter. Now we are in 2 Peter, if you would turn there, 2 Peter. And this will be uh, a verse-by-verse study of that letter. Um, This is uh, one of the most neglected parts of the New Testament, most commentators say. In fact, some even call it the the dark section because very few people read First Peter, it's, uh, excuse me, Second Peter. It's not like First Peter. Everybody likes First Peter, but Second Peter and Jude tend to be books that get ignored a lot of times. Um, it's not as popular, and it's maybe probably because chapter two is so negative. Uh, well, I'm not going to get there today, but as you can read it yourself, it's just got so much negative attacking, going after a particular group of people who are. Uh, endangering the church, the false Bible teachers um, who have come on the scene and they, they teach error and they live wicked lives. And the language is very strong that Peter has for them in that chapter. Um, and people don't always like to hear negatives and so maybe that's the reason people don't read it that much, I'm not sure. But uh, anyway, we're going to do it. We're going to be in Second Peter uh, in these coming weeks. Uh, I show you in verse, turn to chapter 3, verse 1, that we're talking about the same author, Peter. He says, this is now, beloved, the second letter I am writing to you. We just got through with the first one. This is the second one. It's written to the same group of people, the aliens you recall in chapter 1, those scattered because of persecution throughout Asia Minor. So we have the same audience, the churches in that region. Uh, And also you see in uh, verse 1, you in which I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder. So this is a letter, this is 3-1, same same verse, chapter 3, verse 1. I am stirring you up I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder. I'm telling you some things you already know. That is what I have done in this letter. I want to stir you up by reminder. Uh, Go back over to 112, chapter 1, verse 12. He says, therefore, I will always be ready to remind you. See the word remind is there again. Uh, you of these things, even though you already know them and have been established in the truth which is present with you. So we don't hesitate to say things over and over again. It's always a challenge, though, to come up with new ways of saying it, but we always need to be reminded because we tend to forget. I mean, we live in a fallen world and uh, we have small brains and we can't remember everything. Uh, and so we need to be reminded. We have a, a tendency to wander and drift from things and from the truth, and we need to be reminded, and that is what Peter is certainly seeking to do in this. Um, as long as we're on this side of heaven, we cannot hesitate to get these reminders um, this is the last of Peter's letters, as you know, that, that we know of, that, that he wrote. And this is kind of, you heard the term swan song. This kind of, it's your last words. And so you want to say something. Uh, you want to say something that is, uh, uh, is significant to, to leave people with. And uh, 
that's what he does. He's writing from a prison cell in, quote, Babylon. We said last week Babylon is the imperial city of Rome. He's in a prison cell in Rome, 66 AD. He's probably going to die. They most believe he died in 68 AD. So he's close to death. He's close to death. Um, you see at the end of the book of John, you don't have to turn there, but the end of the book of John, Peter is told by Jesus how he will die. He says, they will take you and they will stretch out, they will take you to a place you do not want to go. They will stretch out your arms. And so he knows that he is going to die, most likely, and he did die, by crucifixion. And he's told that by Christ prior to the resurrection of Christ. Um, Notice in verse 1, chapter 2, verse 1, Simon, Peter, it's interesting, if you have a translation, the actual word is Simeon, Peter. Simon is a Galilean name, Simon. Um, Simon, Peter, he doesn't start 1 Peter that way. He starts 1 Peter with Peter. Uh, but here he does Simon, Peter. I always think it's neat what I've studied uh, study on Peter a long time ago when we were talking about the disciples. Just the idea that Simon represents his old life, Peter, his new life. Uh, your name is Simon, you're going to become Peter, a rock. I just think that is a common reminder to him of the grace of God and how that has worked in his life. He is truly an example of the very last verse of 2 Peter, grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. He was, he was a piece of work. He was, he, was a, he was one who God worked in and transformed and changed. We saw it, we see that. And now we come to the end, and he is a, an apostle, we're told here. He's an apostle, one who um, uh, is a unique eyewitness uh, to the life and ministry and resurrection and resurrected Christ uh, he holds a significant office role in the church, in the early church. There are no more apostles today. People may attach that word to their name, but not in the sense of Peter and the other 11. These were men who have authority. These are men who write with authority and speak with authority. They are very much like the prophets of the Old Testament. They speak God's words. So when Peter says he's an apostle, uh, he is speaking about the fact that he holds a very significant position of authority and place of authority in the church. But he's also a bondservant. That's also mentioned there. Bondservant is doulos. It means slave. A slave has no rights of his own. A slave does not speak for himself. A, a slave does what his master tells him to do. He sees himself as a bondservant of Jesus Christ, apostle of Jesus Christ. That's Simon Peter. Um, go down to verse 13. I, I alluded, alluded to this earlier. I consider it right as long as I'm in this earthly dwelling to stir you up by way of reminder. There you see that phrase again. Knowing that the laying aside of my earthly dwelling is imminent as also our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. That's what I told you in John 21. And I guess he feels like it's probably getting close. He's in prison, and the persecution by Nero has, is, going, is going on. And since he's a leader in the church, he says, my last days are here. 
And so he writes this letter, verse 15, and I will also be diligent that at any time after my departure, you will be able to call these things to mind. Just kind of giving you some kind of understanding of what he's doing and why he's doing this and, and what he's thinking in this. Um, I think the message of this book is going to be on the subject of saving faith. And I'll explain that as we go through this. But I think that's going to be the message of the book, saving faith. Uh, that's the first chapter especially, lays it out, saving faith. Second chapter, those who threaten the doctrine of saving faith. And thirdly, the hope of saving faith as you look at the, uh, at the coming of Christ. That's kind of how I think it's laid out. There's some other themes that you can certainly find in this short letter, but I would say that's what we um, are going to see as we go through it. Um, you think about the church. We saw in 1 Peter, the threat to the church was from the outside, persecution from the outside. 1 Peter, the persecution to the church is coming from the inside. It's one thing to have missiles coming at you from the outside, but it's another thing when the guy just walks in the door with a bomb under his shirt, right? I mean, that's the idea of 2 Peter. Outside persecution, 1 Peter. Inside persecution, 2 Peter. You see that in verse 1 of chapter 3. They've crept. thought I had it here. Hold on. You see it in chapter 2. Verse uh, 1, but false prophets also arose among the people. See that? Among the people, just as there will be also false teachers among you who will notice secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who brought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. So you just get an get a idea here of the, where this is going and what this is about. So let me take you to the first two verses just this morning. These first two verses, I want you to notice in verse one, in the middle of the verse, it says, to those who have received a faith. I want you to learn this about saving faith. And this is so very important. Saving faith is something that is received. <laughs> it's received. Um, we already have an interpretive issue here in this verse. It says, to those who have received a faith. Now, there are some who say, when you read that verse, that word faith is talking about objective faith. That word faith there is talking about the content of what we believe as Christians. Follow me on this. The once and for all delivered to the saints faith the content of Christianity. The, 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 prof, the prophets and the apostles delivered the content message of Christianity. It's called the faith in that verse. And they say, that's the same thing here. It's objective, objective faith. And then the other view, which I think is the correct view, would say, no, this is talking about subjective faith. This is talking about my personal faith in Christ. This is talking about my personal commitment to Christ. I received not an objective truth, though I did receive that, but what I received was a subjective faith, not an objective faith. 
I received this commitment that I have, this belief that I have, this trust that I have is a received faith. It has everything to do with um, my belief and trust and commitments, my actual faith in Christ. And we say from the context that's true because if you look down in verse 5, you notice that this faith is a growing faith. Now for this very reason, applying all diligence in your faith supply moral excellence. As we read the rest of chapter two, as the verses that Doug read for us earlier, we read those verses, we see that it's, this faith is a growing faith. Objective faith never changes. Objective faith is constant. It's once and for all delivered to the saints faith. So it's not objective faith here in verse 1. It's subjective faith. It's talking about your commitment and your trust and your belief in Christ. That's the faith we're talking about. Many have gone erred in, erred in 2 Peter because they've started out that way. But the context does not allow for an objective faith, but a subjective faith. Objective faith doesn't need to grow. Objective faith is complete. Subjective faith grows. If you've got true faith in Christ, it's a growing faith. Now, received is an interesting word as well. We might as well break this down and just talk about all these different things, but notice that word received. This is a saving faith, this subjective faith, this faith of trust and commitment to Christ is received. The word means an allotment. It means by a lot. It was, it was like it, was, um, uh, it has nothing to do with your attainment in it, but it's an allotment. It's a free gift. They would cast lots to make decisions in the Old Testament. They trusted so much in the providence of God that uh, they would cast these lots to make decisions, and the decision could turn up favorable to some and unfavorable to others. A lot was cast for, you recall, Jonah. Who on this boat is sinning against God? And they cast lots and it fell to Jonah. Or Matthias, to replace Judas, they cast lots to determine who would replace him. It fell to Matthias. You see, it was... Proverbs 16.33, other places uh, you could go and find that as well. But this is an allotment. This is something that is um, done by, not by the individual, but this is something that is allotted to you. God allotted to you the faith that you possess. He favored you. And this faith has been granted to you. And that's an important understanding of what that word means. We, we see in Matthew 16, he said to them, but who do, you say do I am, that, who do you say that I am, Peter? Peter, who do you say that I am? He goes, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus said, blessed are you, Simon Barjona. Flesh and blood did not reveal that to you, but my God who is in heaven. You believe that because God revealed that to you, Peter. It came from God. Your belief in that that statement that you've just made there 
was given to you by God. Notice in Luke 10, 22, you don't have to turn to these, you can just write these down, but all things, Jesus says, have been handed over to me by my Father. No one knows who the Son is except the Father, and who the Father is except the Son, and anyone whom the Son wills to reveal him. And then you see in Hebrews 12, 2, fixing your eyes on Jesus. Notice, Jesus, the author the author and finisher of your faith. Acts 16, 14, a woman named Lydia is listening to Paul speak, and we're told in Acts 16, 14, that she was listening, and the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. So, so here's, here's the Here's the tension I know we all feel. Though we are commanded, we are commanded to express saving faith, that faith is not explained by us willing to do so, but only reason anybody repents and believes the gospel is because they have received the allotment to do so. See that? Ephesians 2.8, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it, focus on that word it, it is the gift of God. The it refers to both the grace and the faith, those are the gifts. The grace is a gift, the faith is a gift. Not by works. Everybody does not have this faith. Everybody does not have this faith until God grants it. You don't pull yourself up by the bootstraps yourself. It's the supernatural ability of God for you to lay hold of Christ. He does something in your dead heart. He does something in your darkened heart. He does something to make you alive to do this, to believe. Something, something makes you say, Christ is more precious to me than my sin. How is that even possible, you say? How can I do that? I love my sin too much. I love myself too much. There's nothing in the natural man that wants to repent of anything. I like it the way it is. I want to be God. And along comes this gospel this foolish message about a man dying on a cross for my sin, foolishness to the Gentiles, the Greeks. What overpowers that attitude toward the message but the power of God that makes the gospel more attractive than the sin? It's a gift, folks. It's a gift to believe that. It's not a human faith. It's not something I just mustered up in me and said, okay, I'll just here today, gone tomorrow, faith. In our new members class, this is the first lesson we give to people who come to join our church. It says we want to make sure you understand saving faith. Second Peter is not our text. We want to make sure you understand that James says there's a difference. There's a, safe out, there's a faith out there that does not save, and then there's saving faith. We want you to understand 
the difference. Because many teachers today teach a faith that does not save. They teach a faith that's easy believism, just assent to some facts, sign on a card. They say you can believe and never change your life. See, that's why Peter's got to get this right. We've got to get this one right. It's interesting to me that he doesn't just go after the false teachers in chapter 1. He starts out with this. He starts out with this first before he takes on the false teachers. If you don't belong to the universal church, if God has not placed you in his universal church, why would you want to be a member of a local church? So, saving, genuine saving faith is a gift. It comes from God. He is the one that, and if you want that, you cry out to him for it. If you're sitting here right now, you're saying, how do I get that? Cry out to him. Cry out to him. Turn from your sin. Turn to him. Say, God, I repent. I want want this. God, grant me repentance. Grant all this in me. If this is all a work of you, then I want you to do that work in me. So, if it wasn't for his sovereign allotment, you would still be in your sins. Didn't we just sing this? You are the God of salvation? Did we just sing that? We don't save ourselves. This is so vital. This is so vital. Reminds us that any addition to true faith has to be rejected. You can't add anything to it. You cannot say, oh, my part, God's part. No, no. In sanctification, yes. Not justification, no, no. It's not your part, God's part. You add a little here, God adds a little there. No. That was the heresy the early church fought. No, it's all God. It's all God in salvation. Secondly, you'll notice in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 1, of the same kind as ours. He goes, he goes, Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those, that's his audience, those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours. Interesting. This is what uh, Steve Lawson calls, I couldn't think of a title, so I just stole his title, generality of faith. It's a general faith. In other words, Peter is saying, listen, this faith that you receive is the same faith I received. It might be easy for you to think because I'm an apostle, I got some higher level of faith. No, I didn't get a higher level of faith. It's the same faith, the same faith. It not has anything to do with um, the color of your skin. You're going to get a certain kind of faith and this group's going to get another faith. No, it's the same faith. For people of all nations, every tribe, every nation. There are churches gathered in places around the world today. I got a letter from a guy who listens to us online in some country that I'm not exactly sure of. And he says, I'm really praying for you, brother. He gives this long three paragraphs of just his love for Christ and dedication to Christ. And says, I pray that the people in your church don't fall asleep while you're preaching today. And says things like that. And I mean, but but same faith. Wherever he's at, I don't know. Ukraine and Russia and all those places around the world, same faith where believer, true believers are. 
Those who have received this faith can know, and all of us can know, it's the same faith. There's no hierarchy. There's no superstars. Jesus told, Peter, told uh, Thomas, Thomas, uh, remember when Thomas was doubting if it was really Christ or not? And Thomas, he says, Thomas, because you have seen, you believe. Blessed are those who believe but have not seen. So in 2022, that faith that we received is the same faith they received. In fact, it's the same faith the Old Testament saints received. Turn to Hebrews 11, Hebrews chapter 11. It says in Hebrews 11, see, it's always been faith. Old Testament, New Testament, it's always been faith. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. So what's he saying? Faith, get this, faith is the organ to see the invisible. That's what faith is. Uh, when it comes to the promises of God, it helps me to see the promises of God as being true. It's, it, f- true saving faith is not based on empirical evidence. It's not based on what I see. It's divine assurance. That's what it is. I, am, I have assurance. It's divine assurance. Divine conviction. This is internal stuff. It's interesting that this faith moves people to do things. Moves you to do things and me to do things. I see evidences of it. I can't see it. I can't see God. I can't see Christ. But I had this organ called faith that enables me to see the invisible promises of God. That gives me conviction, gives me divine assurance. And then he gives examples how this was fleshed out in the lives of several Old Testament people. I'm not going to go through all of these. You can certainly read these. Verse 7, by faith Noah warned about God of things not yet seen. In reverence prepared an ark for the salvation of his household by which he condemned the world and became an heir of righteousness which is according to faith. He believed God. He just, he, he believed God. He could not see. I, I always often think if I could pile up all the evidences I had to con- convince an unbeliever about the existence of God, and he said, yeah, you've convinced me, I believe God exists. That still would not save that unbeliever. You know that? Apart from saving faith, he would not be, he would not be saved. He'd be lost. God is not impressed when unbelievers believe what the whole world believes, and that is that there is a creator. They've just suppressed it. But just believing there's a creator does not save you. Just believing in the existence of God does not save you. Just believing all the evidences of my apologetics does not save anybody. It's the saving work in the heart, the divine assurance, the conviction of. It's what goes on in the heart. That's this faith, and only God can place this faith in me. I can have intellectual faith about a lot of things. That doesn't mean no good. It's this faith that makes the difference. Noah, we said in verse 7, had that faith and it moved him to do something for 110 years that everybody thought he was crazy doing. Abraham left his country, didn't know where he was going, verse 8 says. Verse 9, he lived as an alien in the land of promise, dwelt in tents. He just believed 
and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Verse 20, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau. Jacob, as he was dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph. And, and just go through all of these Old Testament people who had saving faith. It was a faith that worked. They did not work for the saving faith, but this saving faith was manifested by the fact that it worked. It did incredible things because it believed in God, because it had divine assurance. It had the conviction of things not seen. That's what the whole chapter is about. Verse 39, you can read the whole list yourself, but in verse 39 of Hebrews 11, it says, all of these having gained approval through their faith. So first century believers had genuine faith. There were believers in the, first, in the first century that had genuine faith. There were believers in the Old Testament that had genuine faith. And there are people in this room and other believers who have genuine faith. All faith is not genuine faith. You know, we have different roles. You know, we have different roles in the church, for sure. And some of our faith is tested and tried and, and we mature and those things, that's all true. But that faith at salvation is the same faith. Same faith. Go back to Second Peter chapter 1, continuing in verse 1. This is the ground of that saving faith, the foundation of that saving faith by the righteousness, or you could insert the word in, in the righteousness, by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. The faith is not in yourself. The faith is not in faith. That's the, that's the, that's the word of faith movement, by the way. You have enough faith, you believe enough, you have faith in your faith, then you can, you can change reality. That's the word of faith movement. You can... You can tell God what to do. Basically, you can make reality. It's not faith in faith. The object says, by or in the righteousness of God and Savior, of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let me just make a comment here because this is an incredible statement that Peter makes regarding the deity of Christ. Peter is calling Jesus Christ, you see this, both God and Savior. See that? He's God and Savior. God and Savior. There's an article in front of the word God. There's not one in the front of the word Savior. The Greek grammar rule says if you have one article and two nouns, they both go together. Jesus Christ is God and Savior. Cults don't like this, by the way. Cults like to put another article in, the, in there. You're talking about God the Father and God the Son. God the Father and the Savior, God the Son. They like to say it that way. No, the true understanding of this verse is that we're talking about the second person of the Godhead, God the Son and Savior, Jesus Christ. When you come down to verse, uh, into verse two, you see the knowledge of God. That's God the Father. God and of, the, of Jesus Christ our Lord. There's a distinction made there. The Godhead has three distinct persons. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. 
They're distinct. God is not the Son. God is not the, the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not the Son. The Holy Spirit is not God. You can do all of that. I, I, I'm not going to be able to explain it to you, of course, but the point is it's one God, three persons, three distinct persons. What we're talking about here in this section of verse 1 is God the Son, the Savior, Jesus Christ. That's an important distinction. That is the ground of saving faith, the Lord Jesus Christ. He says it's the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. His righteousness, his perfection, not yours, not yours. Your righteousness, filthy rags. Your righteousness, not acceptable to God. It doesn't matter how nice of a person you are. Anything that you do apart from the righteousness of Christ is futile and worthless. And what we mean by the righteousness of Christ is that he kept God's law perfectly. That's what we mean. He kept the Ten Commandments and he kept them perfectly. He is the only one on the planet to ever do that. Turn to, here's the reason your righteousness is worthless. It's because you've got a sin nature. You have polluted it with a sin nature. Christ did not have that. Turn to Philippians 3. Philippians chapter 3, verse 8. Philippians 3, verse 8. Philippians 3, 8. More than that, Paul speaking, more than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ. All my accomplishments did nothing to make me right with God, he's saying. And he says, and be found in him, in Christ, not notice, not having a righteousness of my own derived from trying to keep the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. This righteousness that I have did not come from me trying to keep the law. This righteousness came to me through faith in Christ. The righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. See, when you die, folks, when you die and stand before God, you better not be relying on your own goodness or you will be damned. On that day, your only hope is going to be, God, I believe in Jesus and he has clothed me in his righteousness. Not mine. It's alien to me. It's outside of me. He has clothed me in his righteousness through faith. Steve Lawson wrote this about George Whitfield. He said, George Whitfield, I'm just going to paraphrase. He said, George Whitfield was in a club called the Holy Club. He and Wesley and others were members of this holy club, and they met together to study the Bible. And he says, you know what? Not one of us in that holy club had a saving knowledge of Christ. He says, we're trying to do everything the Bible says to do, but we did not have a saving knowledge of Christ. We were trying to be more zealous to keep the law of God, he says. And he said, the more we would try to pull ourselves up, the further we would sink down. Failure. After he was converted, George Whitfield said, he was like a pot. He said, he said I, after he was converted, he said this, I was like a pauper looking into my bank account book and every time seeing that I was absolutely had nothing in it. 
I was too ashamed before God to look into my account and see that there was nothing of any value to commend me to him. Then he said, I stopped looking at my bank account and I looked to Christ. And he says, I looked to Christ, believed upon Christ, and all the riches of the righteousness of Christ filled up my bank account. <laughs> Isn't that something? He says, I was transformed. It was all transferred, excuse me, to my account. His perfect righteousness, the entirety of his life and his death is transferred to my account in a moment. The moment you come to faith in Christ, that transaction is made. And the righteousness of Christ, the perfect life of Christ is put into your account. And he declares you justified based on what Christ has done. It's not just an empty, floating in the air righteousness. No, it's based on the righteousness and the perfection of Jesus. Isn't that good? Man, that's the gospel. That's the gospel. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says this, He made him who knew no sin excuse me, he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. See, if you're not relying solely on Jesus, his death on the cross for your sins, his resurrection from the dead to be completely forgiven for your sins, if you're not counting on his righteousness to be imputed to your account, if that's not what you're trusting in for salvation, you may not be a Christian. You may not be a Christian. Maybe you're like George Whitfield. You're just thinking, if I can just pull up my bootstraps, if I can just do this, if I can just keep the law of God, if I can just keep the rules, if I can just be a moral person, if I can just do enough good things. No. You just sink deeper and deeper and deeper. You know why? Because you're polluted by your sinful nature that just keeps you down. He believed, oh my goodness, he had faith, but it was not a faith that saved. It was not a saving faith. Because it was in the wrong thing. It was in George Whitfield himself. Folks, it's a terrible thing to fall into the hands of the living God without Christ. Here it is. All right, let me see if I can... I just want to say this. When you're talking about faith, it's important who your faith is in. Some people say, I am a person of faith. You hear that? They call us, we are people of faith. The faith community or whatever. Folks, it, what matters is who your faith is in, right? Who's your faith in? Faith in who? That's ambiguous. Just say, I'm a person of faith. All right, fourthly, go to verse 2. We're moving along. Verse 2. What comes to us from this faith? The gain. This is what this is about. One and two. One, two. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of, our, of Jesus our Lord. Okay, notice. He wants these two things to be multiplied, grace and peace. I needed grace when I was saved. I needed lots of grace. So did you. I needed God's favor to be shown on me. I needed the allotment 
I needed for the law to fall on me and save me. That's grace. I didn't deserve that. I need it for salvation. I need more of it all the time. I grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. I need peace, state of well-being, peace from God because I'm at peace with God. I'm justified, I'm at peace with God. The, the penalty has been paid. I'm at peace with God, now I need peace from God. We saw, talked about that last time. I need peace. I, 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 if your peace, by the way, if your peace is rooted in politics or in government or in anything in this world, the circumstances of this world, you have no peace, right? You have no peace. Your peace is rooted in Christ. He is perfect peace. If your peace is rooted in your health or your financial position or whatever, you'll, or what people think of you or don't think of you, you won't be at peace. There's no peace. It's only thou will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on thee. King James Version. Word knowledge is an important word in the book of 2 Peter. You're going to see this word over and over again in the knowledge of God, of God and of Jesus. That's God the Father and God the Son, our Lord, Jesus our Lord. The knowledge is not an intellectual head knowledge. I've said this before. It's not an intellectual head knowledge. Understand you can know the facts. You can know the facts and you can have all the knowledge and not be a believer. And just because a preacher gets up and says, Jesus this and Jesus that and knows a lot about Jesus and quotes a lot of Bible verses does not mean he knows Jesus. The justification that some people use as to why they will listen to some of the false teachers that we're going to see in chapter 2 is because, well, that guy talks about Jesus all the time, Rod. They talk about Jesus. Of course they talk about Jesus. How else are they going to get into the church? How else are they going to get in, creep in? They don't come here talking about the devil. They come in talking about Jesus. And we have to ask questions. And we have to know what Jesus this is they're talking about. So just knowing it doesn't make you right with God. The knowledge that's being talked here, talked about here is an experiential knowledge. It's, it's in the heart. It's an intimate growing knowledge. Getting to know somebody. You know your wife and you know your family and you know somebody. It's, it's an ongoing relationship. It's a, a genuine heart affection. We love Christ and we're compelled to love Christ. But I want to qualify that with this. You don't want to just throw intellectual out the window. Because there's a lot of people who have a heart love for Christ, and it's the wrong Jesus too. I mean, how do you make a distinction that that Jesus that you're loving in your heart is not the Mormon Jesus, or the Jehovah Witness Jesus, or the other cult Jesus? How do you know that that salvation that you're talking about is not the Roman Catholic pathway to salvation? How do you know? The intellect does have to get involved here. I can't just sacrifice intellect for the heart only. I've got to know some things. I've got to know some theology. The Bible commands that we have a knowledge that connects both heart and mind, folks, right? We saw that in 1 Peter. How can you be sober-minded if you don't think right thoughts about God? So I'm just saying, 
I don't want to just have a heart that never touches the head. And I don't want to have a head that never touches the heart either. I just want them to be united together. Because we do make confessions about certain truths, about God and, and Christ, and, and that's very, very important. Very, very important about our intimate knowledge of God and Christ. And it's very important to our relationship of growing in Christ. John 17, 3. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent, that they may know you. That's what the Christian life is. It's getting to know God better and better. So you want to be protected. You want to be protected here from those uh, who persecute from within, who want to pollute the doctrine of salvation. Say everybody's saved. Or say, it's, you know, it's, you don't need, a, true faith has nothing to do with your life that follows. True faith has nothing, to, things like that, things we've all heard. You want to be protected from that. You understand what Peter's saying in this chapter. Know God, know Christ. Grow in the grace and knowledge of him. You're here this morning and you say, Pastor, how in the world do I get this saving faith you're talking about? How do, I, how do I do that? I'm going back to what I said earlier. Cry out to God. Cry out to God. God, give me that allotment. I need it. And I guarantee you, he will meet that kind of a heart that cries out to him. Broken and contrite heart. God, I recognize my bankrupt condition. I've looked into the account of my life and I have nothing to commend me to you. I need that righteousness and I can't find it on my own. God, thank you for our time this morning. Thank you, Father, for your word, your truth. Thank you, God, for teaching us these wonderful truths from the pen of Peter. We thank you and praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.